Welcome to Dharma If You Dare. Today's recording comes from Doug Duncan and Catherine Poissarat's online course, The Pearl Without Price. In this talk, Doug and Catherine discuss the Buddha's first ennobling truth, that life is always in some degree of struggle. They explore how preferences and anti-preferences contribute to our self-image, and how the degree to which we suffer is tied to the degree to which we cling or can surrender this limiting view of ourself. This coming spring, Planet Dharma will be running an insight retreat at Clear Sky Center entitled Mastering the 16 Stages of Insight. The program will be led by Doug Duncan. Don't miss the chance to undertake this training with a true master of this practice. You can learn more about this retreat at planetdharma.com insight. And now here's today's recording. Okay, so the Dharma is to be known, the Buddha said, the, to be known by the wise, each for themselves. So how does this work? Yeah, well, it's an irony where here we are talking about community. And on the one hand, becoming wise is sort of a solo experience, right? It really always comes back to the inner work that we, we're responsible for ourselves and that only we ourselves can do. And on the other hand, we can't do it alone. It's easier with others. And it's very well supported and speeded up by doing it with other people. So these are kind of like that we can't know our own face without the mirror. And the role of other people and community is to serve us as mirrors for us. All mirrors are good. I, I, do you ever see mirrors in museums? There's a lot of mirrors in Japanese museums and they're basically just pieces of metal that they would polish. And you know, you can't see very clearly in those, but it must have been really amazing at the time because that was all they had. So I often appreciate the value of a, of a clear mirror. And that's why we try to spend time with other practitioners because we're all becoming more clear the more work that we do. And, and then that clarity becomes very useful for one another. This process of doing our own inner work and doing it with others involves a kind of surrender which have you ever noticed like how much the ego just does not want to surrender at all just like wow. no way absolutely not <laughs> that news <laughs> marty oh my gosh marty just learned something no i'm, I'm kidding <laughs> he's kidding he's obviously kidding so this is something that spiritual teacher and a spiritual trainer we do a lot of dharma training here at clear sky really make a lot of effort to specialize in, to specialize in that ability of being a good mirror. And compassionate Sangha members also do that. And that's a tough job, right? To be able to convince another person and convince their ego, actually, you're going to feel better if you surrender. You know, we might agree to it intellectually, like, oh, yeah, I guess that would feel better. But then when you know, something comes up and the ego steps in, there's still this voice going, no way, you do it first. And um, Namjal Rinpoche used to say, I guess he said that to you. My teacher once said, well, who are you going to trust, me or you? So who do you trust? Now, let's say you trust you. I don't want to go here too quick, but if you're trusting you, why? Like what makes you inherently trustworthy? If you're going to trust, you're going to trust you or you're going to trust God? 
or if you're going to trust you, or you're going to trust, say, the Dalai Lama. I would think we'd want to trust somebody with greater wisdom than us. How do you know if they have greater wisdom? You're drawn to it. So humans are drawn to wisdom like moths are drawn to a flame. And like animals are drawn to humans. It's important to realize you're not trusting a, the person. You're trusting yeah. your realization. So if, if I go to Tiger Woods for golf lessons and I say, no, I think I should do it this way. And That's Tiger, right. Yeah. And Tiger says, who are you going to trust, me or you? I go, me. So I'm not sure why I'm paying him for the lesson. But the point is, is that if you go to a golf pro, trust the golf pro, right? If you go to a lawyer, trust the lawyer. I mean, you get the idea. I, I trust my tax accountant for advice about taxes, mm. right? And I don't ask him Dharma questions, mm. right? But I'm not going to argue with him about Canadian tax law. So I hope our metaphors are working. I think the important thing here is that when we're trusting in a spiritual teacher or a trainer, we're trusting in the validity of their practice. We we're kind of recognizing that they've done a body of work that we're also doing and that we've observed that, you know, the work they've done has resulted in some kind of clarity or wisdom or bliss or insight. So that's what we're trusting in is that experience. It's not in the person or the personality. And that's an important note? distinction. Yeah, sure. Yeah, one of the things about the spiritual path is that people think hearing it is the same as doing it. Alas. Alas. No. So, you know, if I hear about Italy and somebody tells me all about Rome, I can sort of think that I understand, I know Rome, but of course I haven't been there, but I think I can know it. Well, the problem with the spiritual life is that if you hear it, you think you have the experience, but where the spiritual life really takes off for most people is when they do a retreat, when they actually apply the practice themselves. And then they go, oh, okay, this is what we're talking about. That's right. So on page 16, we say awake is the opposite of sleep. Talking about awakening. Awakening, right? yeah. Being awake, being in an awake state. And most of us think we're awake most of the time, like during the day, right? You go about your day, you can say, I was awake from 6 a.m. till midnight, right? I was awake. But most of what we do is done from habit. And when we operate from habit, we're not actually awake. And so I used, I think last week, we used the example of driving across Calgary and thinking you're aware of what's going on and you haven't really seen any of it because you've been busy talking to your friend about who's going to win the Super Bowl or something. And then a kid darts out and all of a sudden you're, oh, I'm right here. I'm, I'm awake. I'm right here. I'm, I'm present. I had a friend that I worked with in the Arctic and we were sharing a, a motel room while we were getting ready to go to different communities to survey. I was a surveyor. And in the middle of the night, he gets, starts to get into my bed with me. And I go, I call him Dave. I can't remember his name now. I said, uh, Dave, what, what, are you, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to get into bed with you. And I go, well, I don't know, Dave. I think, no, I don't think so. Just go back to your own bed. But I want to be here, he says. I go, well, okay, but small bed and got to work tomorrow. <laughs> Just go back to your bed. So he goes back to his bed and I go, okay, well, you know, I'm liberal, right? So whatever. And uh, then in the morning I get up and I said, so uh, how was your sleep? And he says, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, well, you wanted to get in bed with me. They said, oh, that one. <laughs> He's a sleepwalker. 
he talked to me, he, he answered my questions, he related to me, right? And he was sound asleep. He said the biggest time he had being a sleepwalker is that when he was at his parents' ranch farm in Ontario, he got up, he made bacon and eggs, he ate them, and he walked down the highway in his pajamas, good thing he had pajamas on, and he found himself like two miles down the highway when he woke up. He completely functioned normally. So when we talk about the awakening, this is the kind of difference we're talking about. In the awakening, you're not sleepwalking. And when in your inhabit, you are. Because you can do 90% of what you do and not be there for it. The nature of awake state is that it's blissful. You feel good. You're clear. There's not a lot of dialogue or confusion in you. There might be a little bit, but there's not much noise in your head. It feels spacious, roomy. It feels like you're at peace with the world. We call it an epiphany, but we would just call it awake. You're actually awake. And when you're in habit mind, you're not. It's just the routine. So we're, we're going through some of the salient points of reflection too here. And one of them is that life is struggle, the Buddha's first ennobling truth. This can be kind of hard to see sometimes, especially, you know, when things are going well or things are just normal. My father really brought this one home to me. For some reason, I, I said, the Buddha says life is struggle and or life is suffering. And he says, well, but... Yeah, I have such a good life and there are all those other people who are starving in the world. I can't say that I'm suffering. And which is remarkable because he's, he's had leukemia and two heart attacks and et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting that he just really didn't relate to that truth. We can sometimes feel like if we're getting our own way, then we're not suffering. But the thing about getting our own way, what, what we call preference mind, is that it makes it so painful when we don't. Have you ever noticed that? Like, I'm having a really great day because I've got everything I wanted. And then you get a day where it's like you hit every red light and your phone is updating the entire day so you can't use anything, right? And all of your socks, one is missing. All of your pairs, <laughs> you have those kinds of days. And You're then it's like, some ah! real <laughs> I know. Well, they're all little things, but know. you know, by the end of the day, you're just absolutely frazzled. So this too is life is suffering. My, my favorite one is going to like Whole Foods or Capers or something, you know, which is just a kind of amazing monument to organic food and fair trade and all these things that are really good. And I just gnash my teeth because I can't choose the kind of cracker I want because there's, you know, 200 options. So I, I think, gosh, yeah, life is struggle. Um, I mean, we recognize, of course, that there's really important struggles like racism or Oh, or oh absolutely. We're I not denying mean to, that. Absolutely. But what we're saying is, is that low-grade struggle is still struggle because of the absence of the epiphany. Thank you. Yeah, right? Yes, thank yeah. you for pointing that yeah. out. Yeah, I don't mean to demean real struggle real suffering. So we tend to think one of the reasons that the exercise that we gave last week about trying on other people's aggregates is so powerful is because we tend to think that taking myself as an example, what I think and what I feel, what I believe, what I'm experiencing, we tend to take this as real. And then I tend to take that as my idea of me. And, and that's my self-image. And that is similar to, if, you, if we combine that with our preferences, I like summer, I don't really like winter, 
when we combine those things, we get this potent brew called our ego. This is a true story. I do like summer. I don't like winter. And here I am living in a place where winter is like 10 months long, right? <laughs> she said she'd never live in a cold climate. Yeah, yeah, I really thought that. And I then, never would and then I was like, what just happened, right? So this is how we set ourselves up for suffering by hanging on to these preferences. And so this has given me a great opportunity to, to work with this. Just every winter, I'm like, okay, some people love winter. Okay, some people think winter is the best season. And just, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can get in this mind frame. You know, what do I like about winter? Can I do that more? And I think I can say that I actually love winter now. He has been walking around without gloves on when I've had gloves on. And That's she amazing. enjoys cross-country skiing. So the, the important thing, to, if I may, the important thing to remember also with preference mind is while you're pursuing preferences, you're also in building non-preference. Because life has a way of whatever your preference is, is to use, also give you the opposite. So if I like empty highways and open road, it's going to give me a lot of examples of traffic jams. I didn't particularly want to live in Japan. I lived there for 10 years. I didn't particularly want to stay in the Arctic. I stayed there on and off for 10 years. But at the same time that I had my preferences for the things that I got out of being in Japan and being in the Arctic, those were good. So all we're trying to say is that where there's a preference, there's a non-preference. And so where you have a preference, you're going to get the non-preference. It's inevitable. So when we go back to the point about suffering, that's going to be the struggle. You're going to have a preference, you're going to get a non-preference or the anti-preference. The, anti the key to the awakening is that you sit in the middle of the preference mind. Okay, there's a preference, there's a non-preference, but I'm sitting in this awake space of bliss clarity. Yeah, and we're sort of using kind of light examples, partly just to have a bit of fun with it, because when we're really struggling with our preference mind, it is really suffering. It can really be a painful experience, and that can manifest in just a million different ways and varies, of course, depending on the person. But practicing with these things that are not so serious is like building the muscles. And that's why we ask people to do things like take on the challenges and try on other people's aggregates because, you know, just not having coffee for a morning is building that muscle so that when we think we're going to get coffee and there's none left, we don't freak out or something, which, you know, people do do. And more to the point, a really good example was this weekend when Karen and I, we were at this conference on chaos, community, and compassion. This community very was predominantly white and older and upper middle class, I'd say, or, or wealthy, we'll say. And I think they, you know, feel too homogeneous to their credit and, you know, don't want to be keeping other people out. So they invited a lot of people of different ages and gave scholarships and invited more diversity. And then these tensions came up around that. And people were very brave about describing what they were going through and sharing it and trying to do it in a respectful way. But some people got very upset. And it was neat to see Karen and I, we were like, okay, yeah, stuff is getting real. We were really able to lean into it. And what you've probably heard us say many times is just feel comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Like we can talk about this hard stuff. We can be with people who are having 
intense emotions, upset or anger, and we can just be okay with that. And that's just super, super valuable, both for ourselves and for others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So these are all just different ways of saying that the ego-centered view of reality, the me-centered view of reality, which produces my self-image, right, is a misunderstanding of reality. Reality isn't in your self-image. Reality is that spaciousness of Sarah's, which is the bird soaring in the sky or however she put it, right? So where there's going to be a self-image that you cling to, it's not that you have a self-image that's the problem, is that it stays fixed. It remains the same. It's repetitive. It it puts you asleep. So the problem with the self-image, A, it's not true. It's just a construct that has been built. And it's going to bring you all the opposites of what you want, because again, back to that preference mind and it's non-preference mind, my self-image is also always going to be running into my anti-self-image. Because where there's a fixed position, there's an other opposite position that's fixed. Does that make sense? So how often are you surrounded by people that you don't really like? You've got friends you like, yeah? you got people you don't like, right? Have you eliminated all the people that you don't like? From your life? <laughs> no. They have a way of reproducing. Because your self-image <laughs> produces them. So if your self-image is, is kind and generous and sweet, right? then why did you marry the bully and the noisy, loud, aggressive guy? Right? Because opposites attract. So self-image A attracts non-self-image B. It's like the agent in the matrix. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They just keep appearing. Mm-hmm. Until we resolve our belief in our self-image, right? Exactly. This is why we encourage you to try on other people's aggregates, to be somebody else. If they're the opposite of you, then you're going to find that people that are the opposite of you don't bother you anymore because you've realized from their perspective, it kind of works. And if you've got people that aren't bothering you anymore, you also find that your friends have their, you know, aren't, aren't exactly always friends. You know, they, they may be supporting you to be like an alcoholic or something. That's not, a, that's not particularly good. So insofar as your friends support your self-image, they're not helping you. Insofar as your enemies are helping you see through your self-image, they are helping you in terms of freedom of being able to go back and forth between. So you become an actor. You just make it up. Today I'm going to be Cleopatra, and tomorrow I'm going to be... Oprah? Oprah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate and review Dharma If You Dare on Apple Podcasts to help more people find and benefit from these teachings. Did you know that Planet Dharma also has a library of articles covering a wide variety of topics? We have over a hundred blog posts on our website offering Dharmic perspectives on all sorts of issues of interest to awakening beings. You can check them out at planetdharma.com slash articles. See you next time, and may all our efforts benefit all beings.